Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by British Ghanaian multidisciplinary artist who uses investigative practices which currently span painting, performance, collage, image transfer, and photographic processes. Through these, she interrogates colonialism, spirituality, and intersectional feminism. Since her debut exhibition, Black Brits, in 2006, she has exhibited in myriad group shows nationally and internationally from Lagos to Cannes. She is a founding member of the Black British Female Artist Collective and a co-founder of the Intersectional Feminist Art Collective. And in 2019, she became the first Black artist to be appointed an academician of the Royal West of England Academy. Please welcome Adelaide Moa. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't... I'm. I just realized I don't know how to pronounce the word academician. Is that right? How would how to, you're an academician of the Royal West of England Academy? Yeah, academician. Oh, wow. Okay, I got it right. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, well, first off, I wanted to ask you, how have you been? I know that for a lot of artists, um, this has been, you know, a complex period, particularly for exhibit, uh, exhibiting work, but, you know, other people other artists quite enjoy the more reclusive life so how has the artist in you experienced this period yeah it's been a it's been complex and challenging but um the the hermit side of my nature has really rather enjoyed the opportunity for solitude and reflection and uh, kind of internal going inside and having this kind of internal apocalypse where I have been really reevaluating a lot of things so it's obviously the 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 difficult side of it has been difficult as it has been for most people but um, the opportunity to really focus on reading and self-expansion and thinking about my work and making new work has has been has been nice and a, a refreshing break from a really rather hectic schedule that I was having um, a year prior. Mm, great so that means lots to come from you uh, we expect from here then. Um, you and I uh, first met if you recall when I interviewed you as part of a documentary I was making on British identity after Brexit and we were looking at the hitherto missing story of John Blank. John Blank known as the Black Trumpeteer to the courts of Henry VII and VIII and you were commissioned to imagine who this mysterious historical figure might have been so can you tell us who was John Blank to you and, and why did you want to be a part of this historic project oh gosh I even forgot about that project <laughs> <laughs> it's been a few years but it was it, I mean it's a historic it really is a historic pro project right it was about reinserting one of the missing figures of, of, of British history and you were uh, an important part in in shaping who he may have been 
Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, that was um, Michael, Michael Ohajuru's project. And um, up until he approached me to work on that project, I'd never actually heard of John Blank before. And when I started to read about, uh, about him, I, I found his story really fascinating. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, for him to have appeared on those uh, um, scrolls for was it Henry VII mm. um, was as, as this lone black trumpeter. And not only that, but also he was somebody who um, fought for his rights. Uh, he fought to ensure that he had equal pay, equal to those of his white contemporaries. And uh, I am not a historian, so I, I don't know um, how he would have perceived himself or how white people would have perceived him at that time. But um, looking at that, that situation through 21st century eyes, it struck me that he was um, a, a very, brave and ambitious and uh, uh, intelligent man and a, a complex individual who was very, very well respected by the royal household. Um, so my, for my part of that project, I imagined him as, uh, <laughs> as, as uh, a young man. I imagined his journey from uh, um, uh, West Africa uh, into Europe and I imagined him as being this young man whose father was named after my grandfather, mm -hmm. um, who was a, a, a traveler um, who used to travel back and forth to various different um, exotic lands and come back to Africa and report stories to his son. And his son always had these ambitions of following in his father's footsteps until one day his father came back with this trumpet and, and took him to the royal courts of King Henry VII. And that is where King Henry VII first heard him play and insisted that he comes to work for him as a royal trumpeter. So that was how I imagined his his story to be, and I wrote this whole um, fictional fantasy <laughs> tale yeah. of uh, my version of John Blank, and then I made my piece, which was was entirely made out of glass, uh, of the, the same image that appears in the in the scroll, repeated uh, over and over again through. Uh, I think it was seven panes of of glass. Mm. Um, so, and with some text as well, where you could see the story. Mm. And what, why was it important for you to connect his story to your own, to your to your father's so story? Uh, that's a habit that I have that I, you know, I, I use throughout my work is this whole idea of of creating my own mythology, creating my own stories. This, you know, a, a writer called Stephen Baycroft once described my work as mythopoetic. Mm. Um, so it's it's something that I sort of intentionally engage with in an in an attempt to um, cement and create this this kind of history and legacy that's associated with. Uh, with my family, with Ghana, with Africa. Mm. Um, I read that all of your performances have at their core the principle of Sankofa, is that right? Um, yes. Can you tell us about this? Uh, what, where does it come from? How has it shaped your work? Yeah, so Sankofa is uh, it's an ancient Ghanaian philosophy. It is one of the um, Adinkra symbols of the Akan people of Ghana. And 
what it means is it is important to understand your past such that you do not repeat the same mistakes from the past and the present and so that you can sort of choose a better future for yourself and your progeny. And so what I mean when I say that it's at the core of everything that I do is that although I'll say again I'm not a historian I am interested in in history and how those histories um, sort of shape our, our present and and future and I feel like whether it is me referencing another artist historically and learning from them in order to build upon that story and say something entirely different or whether it is that I am thinking about or trying to uh, unearth hidden histories in my family that somehow connect also to British history um, in order that I can build upon that and say something different or um, create an entirely new mythology or story around those things. Um, that's what really interests me and fascinates me. So mm. that's what I put into the work. And, and tell me about your journey to becoming an artist, because you weren't always an artist and it wasn't an obvious necessarily um, destiny for you, was it? Really wasn't. <laughs> no, so... Um, I, um, I studied applied biology at university. Actually, something that I, I don't often talk about is the fact that I did a, an entire year of accounting and finance at university. Oh, wow. Um, I, yeah, so I, I, I started off, like, that's why I went to Kingston University, because at the time, Kingston was uh, the, one of the best business schools in the country. And I went to study accounting and finance to following the footsteps of my dad, who is an accountant. Mm. And I just was, I wanted to impress my dad. <laughs> Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew that my dad would find that impressive and that that's something that could make me a lot of money and I could have a good career in the long term. So that's what I, I did. Mm. And uh, six months into uh, that course, I, I decided that I really didn't like accounting and finance, actually. I found it quite boring. Um, and, uh, and so I, I decided to switch, which my parents were not happy about, but it's a whole mm. other story. <laughs> and I switched to applied biology because science, uh, when I was at um, school, science and art were my two favourite subjects. Mm. Um, and, and so I switched to uh, applied biology. And uh, after graduating, I, I went to work in pharmaceutical industry. I actually again my uh, temperamental brain was thinking of medicine initially uh, and then a friend of mine um, used to come and collect me from university in a really flash car and said he got that car from working in pharmaceuticals as a medical rep so <laughs> I decided to do that because I couldn't face any more debt and mm. because I wanted to have a glamorous job so mm. that's how I ended up working in that industry with this really glamorous exciting job traveling all over the place uh, but then I was diagnosed with endometriosis which I had been suffering with since I was probably 17 without knowing and uh, and, and that kind of put a stop to things um, by around 2005 and um, but the thing was because of the fact that art like I say was one of my favorites when I was at, in secondary school it, although I didn't pursue it, I did continue to paint and draw uh, all the way through um, university while I was working. Everybody who oh. knew and loved me understood that this was my passion. And so while I was sick, I continued to um, really work on that and develop my skills and start to read and study. Uh, and, um, and then I just, I, I had this moment of perceptive clarity when there was a, a 
there was there seemed to be this sea change where more and more friends and family started wanting pieces and they switched from oh let me have that to I'll give you money for that and that was Mm. at that point when I had this this kind of epiphanic moment and I decided that um, this was something that I could pursue as a career despite the fact that I knew absolutely nothing about the industry I didn't have any contacts at all Um, so I just kind of jumped headfirst in Wow. Um, So, I mean, did you have anyone ahead of you that you could look at as a model? Did you have any artists who were kind of predecessors that you could could reference? I mean, were you just stepping out completely solo? Completely solo. Aside from when I was in secondary school and I studied Frida Kahlo, who was uh, she, Frida Kahlo is who made me fall in love with painting in the first place and painting in a very particular way in mm. terms of t- speaking uh, about about life, about real life and about real pain and, you know, real experiences. Aside from that, I, I, I had no idea about um what was out there, who was out there, you know, if there were any other black women, for example, doing what I was doing. I, yeah. I just didn't know. I just went into the world completely blind. Wow. Um, and, and then, so how do you get from, you know, entering this world that, you know, you're completely brand new to, you don't have anyone to necessarily guide you in any way to, you know, developing such original takes and practices. I mean, one of your practices for those who may not yet be familiar with your work involves using your body as a, as a living paintbrush. Um, how, how did you come to use your body in this way? And why was it important for you to use your body as, a, as an artistic tool in that sense? So many things in that question. More <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> questions, I should say. Okay, so, uh, well, in the first place, um, it, it, like with anything, it, it, it didn't happen solo. I didn't do it by myself. Hmm. Um, I, I built a community around myself, and I did that in a number of ways. One of the ways in which I did that was um, I attended a course at the Royal College of Art, which was a curating course called Curating Conversations with a lady called Karen Alexander. Mm. And even though I'm not a curator up until that point, I had been curating my own exhibitions completely, usually by myself, sometimes with the aid of um, other friends, like a man called Ola Shabawale, a friend of mine called Dreen Wilson, um, helped me to put together various exhibitions. And uh, when I did this this course, at the end of the course, Karen Alexander said to me, um, you you can't continue to do this on your own. You need to have a community of artists around you and a community of curators, and you need to draw from those people. Um, And she suggested that I move into an artist community, namely a um, a, a studio complex. Mm. And so I took her advice to heart. And that was the very first thing I did was look for a studio complex. And there happened to be a big one very near to where I lived at the time called Thameside Studios in Woolwich. And at the same time as that was happening, so this was around that happened around 2013, 2011, what I did was I started interviewing other artists. Um, and that started with a, a blog and it progressed in 2016 to a video series called Art Discussion. Mm. So 
that combination of speaking to other artists and not only other artists, to uh, dealers and curators and doing these interviews allowed me a way of really developing really strong relationships and networks with other artists and, um, and dealers. And, and that happened quite by accident. The, the whole thing with interviewing artists happened as a consequence of, again, me being sick, but still wanting to have a foot in the game, so to speak. Um, mm. And it was an unintended consequence that I, it helped me to really develop this really cool and um, exciting and a network of of artists dealers curators who have all helped to support me into where I am now and then one of the pivotal moments was an interview I did with uh, Rachel Arrow who was actually the very first video interview actually no she was the second video interview that I did uh, in 2016 um, and um, we developed a friendship and I asked her to critique uh, my my body of work at the time, which was a figurative body of, of work, which was really exploring the female form and relationships between women. And, um, and what she told me is what, what got me to completely change my whole thought process about who I was as an artist. Up until that point, I thought I was a figurative painter. Or I was trying to be a figurative painter. I was trying to train myself to be the best figurative painter I could possibly be. And uh, her assessment was that there was there were so many other things um, that I needed to be thinking about and that I should she she also pointed out the fact that unless I was I was I was going to go and get some serious training um, I was not going to be the figurative painter that I, I wanted to be which was really difficult to hear um, but it also wow. it, it was really yeah, it was like a, it was like a punch in the gut but it was necessary mm. because that critique is what forced me to think really outside of the box um, about who really am I as an artist mm. and uh, I don't I did, so that was the catalyst there wasn't anything specific that kind of triggered in my my brain that this is what I needed to do I just literally went into the studio and started throwing paint around started trying all sorts of different things experimenting um, and and then this thing just hit and it just felt right mm. and it was from that point that I was reminded of Yves Klein and um, really started researching Klein's work uh, properly because I had I, I had kind of on my peripheral memory I had this awareness of who he was and what he did and his importance to um, to art and performance art um, but once I started to really investigate how he was using f the female body in performance art to create these really beautiful works and the feminist response to that that's when um, it it triggered something in me to do my own feminist response to his work mm. and then that my use of of my body has kind of grown from there from there to talk about various other things including colonialism including um um sexual abuse uh and yeah various other um ways of expressing I suppose social issues and angst yeah, I mean, I want to definitely talk about the Confronting Colon Colonization Project into the mind of the colonizer performance. Um, but but before that, I just sort of, because I wanted to trace your journey, um, you know, so obviously you're coming into the sector, you're shaping yourself as an artist. According to government statistics, the art sector remains one of the UK's most overwhelmingly white industries, where only 2.7% of the workforce are from a Black, Asian or ethnically diverse background. 
how did you experience your entry into the art world? Um, was race uh, something that was very, was, was the whiteness of the art world very apparent to you from the outset? It was so obvious. Um, <laughs> it was so obvious. Uh, yeah, it was, um, I, it, it feels it feels a lot better now, I think, because of the of my community. Um, but that doesn't negate from the actual statistics. Um, and when I entered, um, I don't know if it was a it, it is a function of the fact that I just didn't know anybody. But I definitely felt that going into certain institutions or into certain galleries, um, there was a distinct lack of representation, um, whether, whether that was regards to, to actual artwork or artists or um, people working in at, at a high level in institutions and galleries and, and all of the, you know, the, all, all of the, the, the things that make up the art ecosystem. Uh, it was very, very, very apparent, um, which is, mm one of the reasons why I ended up um, being, becoming a founding member of the BBFA Collective, the Black British Female Artists Collective. Yes, yes. I, I, I thought there may have been a connection there. So, so for people who aren't familiar with the, with the, 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 the art world, what does whiteness look like in the art world? How does it show up in, in your day-to-day -day or in, in, in your work or in how you try and work? Oh, it's so complex, um, but it, it just okay so I've got I, I have a, a, a really simple example that was really quite frustrating that literally just happened a couple of days ago mm. um, to illustrate this and that is on Clubhouse okay uh, I don't know if you're on Clubhouse or if you know what Clubhouse is my, my iPhone says no so um, I need, a, <laughs> need, need, need an update to the iPhone before I could get there but I do but for people who aren't familiar with Clubhouse uh, let, let's it's like a, a forum and a, a sort of app forum where you can have conversations with like-minded people in different sort of chat rooms would that be fair exactly yeah, yeah. So there are various chat rooms and one of the chat rooms that I frequent is one called Art and it is it's basically, it's, it's like a club and you, um, and it's all audio and um, we had various conversations and one of the conversations we had the other day was um, uh, why should race matter in the art world? Um, and the fact that we're having to have this conversation in the first place is indicative of what's going on. Um, and mm. there, are, there are people who, uh, you know, talk about the fact that in, in the past year, um, a lot has changed, right? Uh, across all industries, a lot yes. has changed. Um, and, and, and we're really having these conversations that, that uh, these very urgent conversations that are entirely necessary in order to move things forward, right? Um, and, and what's happening is that there's a lot of virtue signaling going on. There's, there are a lot of, of people who are jumping on the bandwagon to say, oh, you know, we're not racist. We are, um, look how inclusive we are. And just, just packing those and those of black people into a really tight space to be able to say that, you know, we're not racist and we're, you know, doing all of the right things to, um, to address these, these important issues. Mm. And um, the thing that surprised me was, um, was, was the fact that uh, other black people are asking, and, and this shows how, how deeply we are all socially conditioned towards 
whiteness as the norm, Mm. right? And there was a collector on there who was talking about the fact that, number one, she's Black. Number two, she chooses to collect the work of Black artists to address the lack of representation, to address the fact that that, um, Black artists are... uh, uh, um, in terms of the the global art market, have the tiniest, tiniest slice of the pie. Mm. Don't be fooled by, if anybody who's in the art world uh, will see loads and loads of articles, loads and loads of galleries showing um, representational art made by black people. Um, and And there are a few black artists who are really doing extraordinarily well right now, but that's called the superstar effect. That is called the superstar effect, right? And that can blind people to what's actually going on vis-a-vis the statistic that you quoted at the beginning of that question. Yeah, the the 2.7%, right? Exactly. So I was was very, very surprised to hear another Black person in this group stating that surely for you as a Black person to be collecting only Black work is racist. Was that the accusation? Let me say that again. Yes. That was the accusation. (laughs) For you as a black person to be collecting only black art is racist against white people. How? Was this the debate? Was this the subject of the debate? That that was not the subject of the debate, but this is something that came up and ended up things getting heated, right? So how can you possibly state when there are countless... Ooh. We, we lost you so sorry no, that, that's okay <laughs> it was the passion at the moment but it's understandable <laughs> but yes are, there are countless white collectors who have entirely white collections and nobody ever asks them why do you only have white artists in your collection mm. nobody asks that question but when a black person has that collection purely to redress a balance not out of ignorance Mm. Not out of ignorance, actually out of knowledge of the fact that uh, Black artists have been historically oppressed and marginalised and wanting to do something to correct that imbalance. Mm. Right? And, and, and so Clubhouse obviously is a, is a bit of a, a free-for-all, right? Does everyone just weigh in? I haven't really played... Um, well, in, in this particular room, no. There are in, in some, this room is actually moderated very, very well. Okay, so I'm interested. I'm interested to hear how the how the yeah how is this re- being reacted to? Well, the the way that it works is you get to unmic and say your piece. So most, oh, okay. if you're on, if you 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 basically you get called up onto what they call a stage, and the people who are on stage can talk and engage in the conversation, and then there's the audience, and the people in the audience are just listening. So if you want to say something, then you unmic, and um the the moderator will see you, and he will allow you to say your piece. So um. It got quite heated. Um, So this kind of question, this kind of thing was coming up. Somebody else was asking, um, what what is it that you you mean when you talk about black art? um, And why do we need to have this definition of black art? And I'm having I'm finding myself having to explain that if you we wish that we lived in a utopian world where race didn't matter. 
Mm. The fact is we do not. We live in 2021 where things like what happened to George Floyd happened. And those kinds of things happen all the time. It just so happened to happen at a time when we're entering into the middle of a global pandemic and all the eyes are on the internet, mm. right? Mm. And you can't ignore it anymore, right? So we live in a time of, uh, of uh, um, urgent racial issues. Mm. You cannot pretend that these things are not happening. If you pretend like it's not happening, just like a cancer, it will eat you up and you will die. Mm. So what do you want to do? Just the reason why we have to have what we call intersectional feminism is so that we can ensure that black women's voices, when we, <laughs> the feminist, you, you're a feminist, you know all of this stuff. The feminist movement was, was at one point or it's arguably still only focusing on white men, women's issues to the detriment of so many other women. So mm. intersectionality comes into that you can point out the disparities, you can point out all of the people who are being marginalized. If you do not shine a light on them, those issues are never going to be resolved. And those people will continue to be stamped on, they will continue to be marginalized, they will continue to be ignored. This is the reason why we have to call it what it is. And we have to say, yes, there are artists who happen to be black, who happen to make work. Look at them, look at their work. Mm. Somebody quoted a, a statistic in there the other day, something like 95% of the, um, or I read a statistic the other day, it said that something like 95% of the most successful artists in history have, uh, uh, um, no, currently have a master's in fine art, right? Mm. A really tiny proportion of those are black. Yeah. I think that's a one of the really things that's being, been highlighted actually by, by the Runnymede Trust is, is the lack of access to, to higher art degrees um, or, and fine art degrees by, you know, uh, black and Asian communities. So, yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me. Um, do, do those statistics come as a shock, do you think, to other people in the conversation? I mean, in, in the art conversation and and do you feel that I, I guess one of the issues in conversations around race and whiteness is that sometimes pe white people in the conversation debate rather than listen to the facts or to the pr perspectives of people of color. I mean, is this something that you experience when you try and raise concerns about how the art world operates? So much. I mean, you get all this understanding um, to try and explain concepts that they, you know, um, and, and, and trying to negate, trying to, um, uh, what's that terminology where they, um, they try and pretend as if, as if what you're saying is not true. Oh, wait, is, it, is it like gaslighting? Gaslighting. Yes, exactly. gas, gaslighting. Yeah. So gaslighting. There's a lot of that happens, a lot of that happens. And it's, it's really, really frustrating. But the good, thing, the good thing about this moment that we're in now is that those kinds of things are, are getting called out. Mm. <laughs> People are not standing for it anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and so there are more and more safe spaces to have these kinds of conversations. And more than that, there are more and more spaces that were previously unsafe <laughs> um, where we can have these conversations without feeling uh, like you have to protect the feelings of white people 
you know, um, because nobody, nobody, uh, what's, what's funny is, is this whole thing about normativity and whiteness. Yes. Um, let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. How does white that show up? Yeah. I mean, like white people don't find themselves in the art world having to explain anything in relation to well everything else exists in relation to it themselves so I suppose whiteness and white culture is invisible to a mm. large extent so you find that um you'll find that that when it comes to uh like even that conversation where somebody's asking to explain um what is black culture and why is it why is it relevant and 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 almost trying to almost trying to um trying to suggest that I don't even know it's white culture is just not questioned in the same way as Mm. the other it just isn't yeah well it's it's that invisible power dynamic isn't it that some people are on trial and have to answer to a standard that's been set and that standard and there's no there's no reciprocation there right the only I think potential reciprocation is if as a white person you might enter into you know black or brown dominated spaces like maybe for once you may have to justify parts of your way of thinking behaving operating that you'd never really had to because they're kind of lubricated by the the wider whiteness in which you operate. But on the question of, of, of sort of white normativity in art, I remember learning at uni how um, Aboriginal art, for example, was never, uh, would never get bought for like large sums of money because it was never really valued as art. Um, mm. And I was just curious as to how much has changed in that. I mean, is the art of all people valued, you know, by some kind of objective metric that allows us to say that, you know, regardless of who does it and where it comes from, you know, we can assess the value of this piece or, you know, does the wider climate of kind of racial hierarchies of of white supremacy, uh, as some would call it, influence the value that we attribute to different art pieces 100 percent um the 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 decision makers um the people who are the definers of taste in the in the art world in the art market are predominantly white um Mm. i go as far as to say are probably all white and um it's it's funny actually uh, there was a Grayson Perry did a talk a few years ago where he was talking exactly about Aboriginal art mm. and, 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 and suggesting that it was not art. Mm. Um, uh, and um, yeah, this was a couple of years ago that I listened to this. So there are, there are, it's, 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 it's interesting that um, if you go back, to looking at modernism, someone like Picasso, um, whose famous work uh, 
um, I don't remember, how, I don't know how to pronounce it, your French, um, <laughs> that piece, that Davignon piece with the masks. Um, oh, where... I'm just artistically illiterate. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to say Picasso and go with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, you but, pronounced but, uh, it much better than I would. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but um, but uh, Picasso is very well known. It's very well documented that you know he uh, um, that that he was very very heavily influenced by African masks. Um, but at the time, what what were those those objects looked upon as? And 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 a lot of those objects have been stolen um, and 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 kept and put in institutions, white institutions all over the world. Um, as these objects of curiosity rather than art. And it's only now that we're having conversations about restitution, um, but um, bringing, it, bringing it to um, what we're talking about in terms of defining value, what gets, what is assigned a higher value and what's assigned a low value. Um, statistically, if we look at the value of, of black artists, the work, works of artists who happen to be black, compared to the works of artists who happen to be white. And obviously I know the world is not just black and white, but just for conversation's sake, sure. there is a huge disparity between mm. the prices of black artists and the prices of white artists. If you take someone like um, Jean-Michel Basquiat out of the equation, because Jean-Michel Basquiat's um, auction prices just skew everything when it comes to the arts, the, 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 the prices of, of um, artists of African descent. Mm. Um, the, the vast majority of artists of African descent or artists who happen to be black, that is, is, is not the case. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, so these, these disparities are very real. Um, and, um, but, but I have hope because of people like Okwi Emuzo, who the late great Okwi Emuzo who died couple of years ago now mm. he was a curator and writer and people like him and BC Silva have spent a years decades um, putting in the work doing the, the, the writing and the academic research um, to ensure that uh, black artists have this their place in history right mm. if because if you don't get written about you get forgotten about mm. and so all of the work that he and other writers who will probably remain unnamed but other people who have contributed towards that work are responsible for where we are at now it's mm. not just the movement the movement is kind of a, a, like a, a another another catalyst that's coming in and and, and is speeding things up but uh, all of that work that has gone into really writing about us to ensure that, as he said, that we are, or artists of African descent are written about or spoken about in conversation with, rather than in opposition to the global or the Western art canon. That's mm. the important thing and, and you know, um, yeah, so now we're having conversations about equity um, and uh, more and more inclusiveness in galleries. Uh, another in interesting statistic came up the other day where I read that something like uh, a survey showed that something like less than 6% of galleries saw um, race and uh, gender issues as important things to be considering when selecting artists. And mm. that's, that's part of the problem. 
that's Aside that's from really else interesting that. Yeah. yeah no and I mean on on in, I mean in relation to what you were saying you know um, I interviewed a few years ago um, the artist Hassan Masoudi I don't know if you know him he's a um, an Iraqi artist who um, comes from a long line of calligraphers uh, traditional calligraphers and he uh, got accepted to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris And when he got there, they said that, you know, what he'd been practicing, what his family had been practicing for generations, calligraphy wasn't actually art. And so he was required to learn how to paint a la Frenchie, basically. He had to learn, you know, traditional French methods of painting, which, of course, were completely at odds and in some cases actually in conflict with his beliefs, you know, uh, painting faces and people um, Mm. as a Muslim being controversial for him, certainly at that time. And he, I remember him saying how he kind of lost himself because he'd always thought of himself as an artist. And then suddenly he was told that he wasn't an artist. This wasn't even art. You know, what generations of heritage was not even recognized as art. Um, And that wound, you know, I I always remember that wound because I heard it, you know, I heard it in how he described it. And eventually what's beautiful about uh, Hassan Masoudi's story is that he then uh, leaves L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts and he starts making, uh, he he fuses elements of what he learned in the L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts with traditional calligraphy. So he slightly modifies the traditional calligraphy by integrating different colors. And and instead of just using the Quran, he uses other philosophical and literary sayings as kind of the base words, but he returns to the source, um, mm. I guess in a defiance, right? Um, and and I, I was wondering to what extent are the methods that artists use you know, obviously you you choose to use your body. Hassan was using, you know, the, the calligraphy brush. These are methods maybe that, um, I mean, in your case, they may well be completely in sync with mes- uh, Western methods of, of the art world. But is there is there space in the art world today for traditional forms of artists or artistry that are non-Western to receive the credit? And if not, is there some recognition that this is a reflection of the kind of wider issue of, of racism? <sighs> Interesting. <laughs> As usual, so much to unpack with, with a multitude of questions in one sentence. Yes, sorry, um, <laughs> I, I, I really land you with them, don't I? Yeah. T- take what you um, need and leave the rest. Okay, okay so I kind of feel like... Um, up until relatively recently, there hasn't been space. Mm. Um, but I feel that with globalization, with the internet, with um, the different parts of the world, the global south um, and other centers in the world in terms of uh, um, places who are contributing to the global art market, even though it's minuscule compared to the actual overall size of the global market, there are other centers that are rising up and really contributing to a a wider conversation. 
right? Mm. So because of those contributions and because of this shrinking of the world as a consequence of the internet and people having so much access to other ways of thinking and other ways of doing and other ways of practicing, that there is increasing space for all of these conversations to take space um, and, and not just in terms of the global um, market, but just in, but also in terms of intellectually, academically, uh, and in terms of the overall canon, global canon, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I feel like um, uh, that we are hopefully moving to, and, and maybe I may be, I, I may be being overly optimistic, but I hope that we are moving towards a time where we are less Western centric. Mm. such that it allows more space, even more space for these, these conversations to happen and, um, and, and, and different practices to influence each other. And there's this kind of global exchange of ideas that's taking place as a consequence of this kind of osmosis that's happening through uh, the intimate, internet and these global interesting and exciting conversations. So, mm. um, you're I guess hopeful. I'm hopeful, but but at the same time, I am realistic in that uh, I, I know that there are certain people who will say that there are certain certain art forms that you couldn't call art that are not art. You could say that it's craft or, you know, they will use all kinds of different ways of demeaning the thing to not include it mm-hmm. in the canon, to not include it as a part of the market. To not include it, you know, in academic conversations, academic discourse around art, around fine art specifically, which is very, very, very elitist world that um, very few people actually have access to. Mm, interesting, and yet, you know, I, prof- I read recently that um, a uh, an invisible sculpture had. Did you read about this? Had sold for millions. So it was, yeah. you know, yes, yes, and and then there was some kind of like, you know, wow, we we really really admire the audaciousness of of the artists, and I was like, the audaciousness of like literally exhibiting nothing. Okay, I'm, I mean, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's nothing new. Eve Klein did it. Eve Klein did it in the 60s. Uh, yeah. He did a whole exhibition of nothingness. Okay. <laughs> People just walked into a space, there's nothing in there. Um, and it's this kind of, this kind of idea of immateriality. I mean, it's nothing new. It's something that keeps on resurfacing in the art world and different people play with it in different ways. And some people will call it audacious. Some people will call it a hoax. Yes. It's, it's not really that interesting to me. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. Um, much more interesting to me is your recent performance Into the Mind of the Colonizer, uh, which you, which was showing in New York last year um presumably and um I'm assuming you're performing this this um this performance you're doing this performance to what is it a majority white audience yes yes and so it's it's entitled confronting colonization and it's you know I've, I've watched a little bit I sadly wasn't able to be in New York but I was able to watch some of it on your website and it's a mm. it's a very confronting uh you know powerful uh piece maybe you want to tell us a little bit about the performance and then how how it came about I mean what what were you hoping for from that piece of art or, or is that not how you think about your performances is there is there a is there a message when you do this stuff that you want to convey or is it like a feeling? 
So, so yes, yeah, sorry. Again, multiple questions. <laughs> well, 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 tell us a, a little bit about the performance just for people who, who weren't able to catch it yet and, and, and maybe just what, what you were hoping people would take away from it, bearing in mind, you know, it's, it's a hot topic. Yeah. Um, so the overall project is called Confronting Colonization. The performance itself is entitled Into the Mind of the Colonizer. Mm. And it came about because uh, in... 2000, 2018, yeah, in 2018, um, I, I have a series of um, alerts set up on eBay. Um, so anything relating to British colonial history that comes up, I generally will look at it. If I find it interesting, I buy it. Um, this particular one was uh, a CD-ROM that contained 204 out-of-print books that dated from uh, the middle 1600s up until around 1920. And Ooh. these books contain um, text that written from the perspective, a majority of the time, of colonizers, people who were actively involved in the colonization project itself. Mm. So these are colonial administrators and those kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And some of them are almost instruction manuals on how to colonize a people. One of them is called, for example, the art of colonization. Um, and, and, and that one is like specifically a series of letters between a colonial administrator and, and somebody who aspires to be just like that colonial administrator. And these, these books provide um, sometimes just information about specific indigenous peoples um, or the natives as they were referred to uh, and, and some of them contain instructions at, on how to keep people under control, how to govern people um, mm. and, and it, that you know for example uh, children for example boys should if there's only a certain type of education that they should receive um, this, this specific example I'm thinking of was in um, formerly British Gold Coast, now Ghana, where they were talking, they were speaking specifically about uh, um, agriculture and the fact that they wanted to get certain things from the land. So boys should be sent to agriculture school, for example, mm. right? so that they could put those boys to work on the land so that they could get what they needed to get for, for to enrich their own pockets. So, uh, and at the same time, there were all kinds of opinions about the people and you can imagine what kind of opinions those were mm. um, and and so when I found these texts I was I was reading through them and so much of what they were saying was resonating with some attitudes of people today um, and and mm. uh, and and some ways in which governments in, uh, and conduct themselves and and the state of uh, neo-colonialism around the world mm -hmm. and and so a lot of things were making a lot of sense as I was digging into into some of these texts I knew I wanted to do something about them in the work I didn't know exactly what that was going to be and and it wasn't until I was approached by my friend a curator called Catherine Finity who was working on a project uh, with a company called Open Space Contemporary an organization called Open Space Contemporary in 2019 um, to put on a thing uh, like an event called of hosting guests where they were looking they were speaking to specifically to French colonialism and um and they were and they were referencing a specific French film um and it, that was I think referencing the Algerian war and mm. and so that then got me thinking about these texts and and that was how the idea for this performance was sparked the performance itself the structure of the performance itself uh is um 
is that at the firstly I'm dressed in Ghanaian funeral attire uh, so I'm wearing a head wrap and a kaban slit just like a, a top and a skirt and it's red and black and it's a very traditional Ghanaian funeral wear and at the beginning of the performance I, I speak the words of the colonizer from the mind of the colonizer hence into the mind of the colonizer mm. um, and I'm reading from these texts to the audience so I've selected specific sections of that text reading from these texts the first time I performed this uh, was in London in 2019 at this off hosting guest thing and I, I did it again in Oslo um, in at the end of 2019 and after I finished the reading I then hand over a pair of scissors to an audience member and invite them without speaking to come and cut a piece of my cloth mm. and and so then the audience it, it almost becomes like this meditative thing where they take it in turns and the scissors is passed around from audience member to audience member to come and start cutting their cloth and at the more and more they cut the cloth the more clothes fall off me until it gets to a point where um, I'm just there, but specifically in the first and second performances, just there in this white underwear and my body is covered in what looks like blood, dried mm. blood. Mm. Uh, and then I reactivate this dried blood with sheer butter from Ghana. Um, and, and then I press my body onto um, large versions of the text, which are spread around on the floor and imprint myself uh, in the present onto that past, right? Mm. As if like leaving this ghost of a memory of trauma behind. And my, my thinking around it was in the first place, the scissors, the act of the cutting was a direct reference to Yoko Ono's 1965 cut piece in which she invited audience members to come and cut her clothes. But mm. hers was speaking specifically about violence against the female body. Mm. Mine was specifically speaking to violence against Africa as a continent in terms of the scramble for Africa, where the, in the 1884-85 Berlin Conference, Africa was cut up among Europeans with not a single African leader present and divided up into what we know as uh, the 54 countries of Africa today. Mm. So my physical being in that space was a representation of that as, rep as well as a representation of the violence against the African and black body. Um, and so I suppose by inviting the audience to partake in that, I was somehow inviting, inviting them to have some kind of, uh, be complicit somehow yeah. in, the, in a, in a reenactment of that. Um, and um, the, the end result of the, the first performance was, uh, the first performance was something like 90 minutes long and it was very intense, very emotional in a really small, tight colonial room. Mm. And uh, um, the reactions of the audience were really interesting. Um, the, the black members of the audience felt this, it was this cathartic release. The mm. white members of the audience felt guilty, like they didn't feel like they, 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 they had this sense of, uh, of, of guilt where they felt like my ancestors could have been involved in this. I don't want to be involved in this. Mm. And they were very reluctant to take part but they mm. force themselves to do it to, because they obviously they know it's not real yeah. <laughs> to force themselves to do it anyway and to be a part of that experience. So that was really interesting. But the even more interesting thing about what happened in New York was the fact that uh, instead of the audience, and I, I attribute this to really the, the political situation 
as well at that time because this is this is right at the beginning of 2020 or it was mm. January 2020 so uh the the black members of the audience when I spoke to them after just outright aside from one who was a friend of mine refused to take part they said this is for them this is not for us we're not doing oh, it oh wow right? okay yeah um white members of the audience uh one man instead of uh in in com- coming and cutting my cloth he cut a piece of his own clothing and dropped oh, it on wow. the floor. Wow, interesting. Another woman came and cut a piece of her own hair mm. and dropped it on the floor. And, and, and then another man came and he took the scissors and refused. He threw it to the back of the room quite violently and that halted that whole stage of the performance. And uh, after the performance, so I, th- I then had to, all of the clothes went off. It was literally only just down to my skirt. So I had to continue the performance as it was. Uh, after I'd finished the performance, I came up to find that particular man and ask him if he was okay, first of all, because it was a really intense emotional reaction. Yeah. And this, this man, um, I, I, he's not white. I think he, uh, I, I, I think he may have been a Filipino and he broke down in tears. And I had to, I held him until he stopped crying. Um, after which he, um, he, he kept on repeating, I just couldn't keep watching them doing that to you. He felt wow. he was protecting me. Mm. Um, and for, for him, this was a violence, not only against my body, but also against my culture and my identity mm. as, a, as a black woman, as an African woman. And he was wearing a scarf that he said had been given to him by his mother. Ironically, my clothes that I wear in the performances were also given to me by my mother Mm. um but uh and he said if someone came at him with scissors on his body to this item of clothing that was given to him by his mother that has such deep cultural significance for him he would kill them and he didn't want to watch them doing that to me and so it was really very interesting and he he went on to ask me if I felt I was somehow sacrificing myself for the message for the work and I hadn't considered it in that context before. So that was very interesting. Mm, wow, that's so moving. I mean, I, you know, so many things to unpack there. I guess one of the things that comes to mind immediately is, do you, America obviously has just been through a very intense few years. I'm thinking of the Trump administration. I'm thinking of obviously the 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 impact of the George uh, Floyd murder and then the trial um, and eventual conviction uh, of Derek Chauvin. I mean, do you sense that there is, that that American attitudes to race have, are kind of in some kind of a flux that there is movement happening or because some people say it's just led to more polarization particularly the Trump administration of course um did you feel like there was some energy that was allowing for a, a kind of challenging of whiteness by white people themselves in that in that in that context Definitely in that context, but then you also have to consider that this is this is a group of of arty people, arty mm. liberal people. Yeah, um, they're not they're not the same as the general um, American population. Certainly not the yeah. sort of middle Bible Belt sort of American population who would have been voting for Trump. So I I, I couldn't see any of those kinds of people being present in that kind of performance without there being some violence. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in, in terms of, in terms of it being 
um, polarizing, certainly uh, all of those things existed before Trump came onto the scene. All Trump did was give permission for people to voice what was already there. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that attitudes have necessarily um, changed. I mean, I, I have a, a friend who is an artist who um, he's British Nigerian and he, he moved to New York and he, um, he started off when he was living in the UK, he was living in the suburbs. He felt completely safe. I've lived in the suburbs my whole life. I feel relatively safe aside mm. from when I was growing up, but now I feel relatively safe. Mm. Um, and, uh, but for him, when he moved to the suburbs of, of New York, he did not feel safe. Mm. And he, he had to then move to a predominantly black neighborhood, uh, a neighborhood that some would, he would describe as, as, as the ghetto in order to feel safe. Because uh, while he was in this suburban, predominantly white neighborhood, he did not feel welcome and he did not feel safe. He felt that if he just walked out down the road and somebody didn't recognize them, they, they would be pulling a Karen and calling the police mm, mm. and accusing him of all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so all of those things are really very, very real. Yeah. Um, and 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 tangible and and have really dangerous consequences. Absolutely. Um, look, but before we go to the the quick fire round, because we're sort of running out of time, I wanted to ask you just to say a few words about your latest work. Um, is it Voices from the Silence, Kwame Kwaku Yao? I may have mispronounced that. No, that was perfect. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Voices from the Silence, Kwame Kweku Yao, is a, uh, it's an installation uh, at uh, Signature African Art in Mayfair. It's on until the 19th of June. Um, and essentially, it's a part of an exhibition called A History Untold. And the whole idea of the exhibition is to tell the stories of, um, of various African um, people and really try and get really try and uh, encourage the national curriculum to, to think about being more inclusive in terms of what is taught to kids. And the story that I'm telling through my work uh, specifically is about an ancestor of mine who is a great uncle um, and also not only my ancestor, but also the ancestor of my collaborator. So the, the, the piece just briefly, consists of two components. Yeah. One component is the component that I made, um, which is uh, at the size of it in total opened out is uh, around 4.2 by around five meters. And it's wrapped around a cylindrical um, sculptural structure. Mm. And, uh, and it kind of resembles sort of a tree. And the other component component is a soundscape by this amazing soundscape artist, uh, Peter Ajay. And um, Peter Ajay also worked on the soundscape for the Toyin Oju, Oju Odutola show at um, the Barbican last year, okay. um, just for reference. But um, so the, the, the piece, there's a, there's a repeated image of an unknown soldier in this piece. Mm. Um, and we calculated that I've used this image on that piece um, more than about 3,200 and something times wow. on this piece. And, uh, and we're really trying to tell these untold stories of um, soldiers who contributed to the war effort. So from my part, my great uncle, 
fought in World War II in the Battle of Burma, which was the bloodiest battle in arguably the bloodiest battle in history mm. and survived. Um, and uh, he came back to tell the tale and it really impacted him psychologically. Mm. Uh, and the on Peter's side, his father actually also fought in World War II in the Battle of Burma and survived to, to tell the tale. Um, and he went on to become a diplomat. Uh, he died a few years ago, uh, age 95. And so the soundscape in, includes the voices of my great uncle, who is the brother of the one who fought in the world, the, in, in the war, the one who fought in the war has since um, passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but his brother is still alive, he's into his 90s, and he's talking to his nephew, who is also my uncle, um, about the experience of his brother in the war and telling that story. Wow. And he's speaking in tree. So uh, you wouldn't understand unless you speak tree, but it's the resonance of the voice and you can hear the emotion of what's happening. And he, he combines it with uh, uh, ancient Ghanaian percussion um, and strings to create this multi-layered cinematic soundscape which just fits so perfectly with the piece when you kind of enter into the space you have to go down the stairs and it's kind of this immersive experience to um sort of see this piece which stands uh three meters tall um and uh and 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 then be immersed in the sound well I actually can't wait to go and see that Mm -hmm. um but it sounds incredible and it's so interesting as well to hear that you wanted um you know I'm almost circling right back to what we discussed originally that you know your participation in the John Blank project about wanting to reinsert missing stories from British history right and and yet yeah. again here being committed to re or bringing to the fore stories of of in this case soldiers who've been sidelined from the or whitewashed many would say from the the version of history that we're told um thank you for sharing all of that um we now have our quick fire round um so uh, very brief answers if you can um what is your definition of whiteness <laughs> brief okay <laughs> <laughs> so uh i think it's 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 this socially and politically constructed thing um which has leads to this learned behavior um i i think it refers to an ideology not to uh, uh not not necessarily skin color color however it leads to the unequal distribution of uh of 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 power based on skin color um and um yeah I suppose that's it and I suppose again being white has it's been proven has no biological significance but this social construct of of whiteness obviously has very real and lasting consequences in the real world what is the root of racism whiteness is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? A post-racial world. What does that even mean, a post-racial world? Is that, do you mean post-racism? A world where racism doesn't exist or a world where we don't see colour? 
I think when, yeah, I was referencing, you know, the idea that's been touted in British politics at different points in history where people have said, oh, Britain's post-racial, meaning I think usually race doesn't matter. Yeah, we don't see colour. Yes. Nonsense. No, um, I think that 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 people who say that they don't see colour, um, that is problematic in and of itself. Um, it's important to see difference. If you can't see difference, if you're going to negate difference, you're negating somebody's experience and identity. And that doesn't help anybody. Differences and all the, the things that make us different in, uh, are the things that make us unique and amazing. So why would you want to pretend that you don't see that somebody is different and want to learn about them? It's only when we understand people's learning, uh, people's differences um, and, and really genuinely learn about them that we, we can then uh, foster some kind of empathy in ourselves rather than tolerance. Tolerance is a word that I can't stand. Yes, so why I should you, I should, why should, uh, I, so I should, my next door neighbor who's different from me, I should tolerate their existence. I should, that's the, someone said to me that they tolerate the fact that I exist. I would want to slap them. Tolerance, yes. it, no, it, it should, we should really be focusing on empathy, not tolerance. So yeah, all of that post business and I don't see color needs to get put in the bin. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? I think so. I think so because I feel like the the, the whole concept well, of whiteness in self, as I said earlier, is this kind of invisible um, thing where white people don't have to confront their whiteness, whereas black people always have to confront their blackness, specifically in the context of the Western world, and not even just in the Western world, you know, in previously colonized nations, we're still dealing with whiteness as a construct um, and the, all of the issues, the structural issues that those things have caused in those countries. So um, I do feel it's, it's, uh, it's useful to have that conversation and acknowledge um, the um, the issues surrounding whiteness such that we can start to really have very serious and useful conversations about what the solutions are because like I said if you're going to ignore something if mm. you're going to pretend like the thing is invisible the thing is going to eat you alive well, Adelaide, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. Um, if people want to connect with your work, uh, where should they head? Uh, so I have a website, which is just adelaidedemoaarts.com. And then I'm also on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And it's just all my name, Adelaide Demoa. Fantastic. Well, uh, once again, Adelaide Demoa, thank you for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.